Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Knock, knock. Who's there? Nate Langson. And Ian Morris. No, hang on. That doesn't work. <laughs> the boss of British Airways has apologized for what he said was a sophisticated breach of the firm's security systems and has promised compensation. Alex Cruz told the BBC that hackers carried out a sophisticated, malicious criminal attack on its website. So here's, here's what we know at this point. The breach itself took place between the 21st of August and the 5th of September. Personal and financial details of customers making or changing bookings had been compromised and it affected about 380,000 transactions. Uh, but travel and passport details apparently were safe. And the CEO has said the company is committed to uh, to compensating anyone affected. Now, there are a number of different angles to take with discussing this story. But the, the thing that was particularly interesting for me, uh, and indeed many other people as well, is that it's one of the most significant data breaches that we've seen since the EU's new data protection rules, uh, the GDPR, uh, have come into force. Um, now, as a brief reminder, if found to have breached the law, companies can face enormous fines, up to you know 4% of global annual revenue for the, for the biggest businesses, uh, which would include British Airways. Um, now, I was helping cover this story in the week at, at Bloomberg, and one of the people I spoke to uh, is a chap called Julian Saunders, who's the founder of a company called Port, uh, which is a, a British software company that helps businesses adapt to GDPR and, and the new data protection rules. And he told me that while he doesn't think a gigantic maximum fine will happen, it's fair to assume that the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, which in the UK oversees this sort of thing, will be keen to set out its stall, he said, that companies need to do more to prevent breaches. Now, Julian actually also made another, I think, very compelling argument. And he said, and I'm going to read this quote in full, in BA's defense, it is worth pointing out that no amount of encryption or blockchain-based security would have prevented this attack. The data appears to have been intercepted before it got to BA's servers. BA's management has also responded in an exemplary manner from recognizing the breach, identifying who'd been affected, updating customers with clear information, and steps they can take to protect themselves, and then reviewing security, which is the process that a company is supposed to go through. Ian, were you affected by this at all? Not as far as I know. Um, I have used BAE before, but I think mostly it's been other people uh, taking me places. Um, and so I've, I believe I've got an Avios account somewhere. Um, I don't think there's anything of value in it, but it's still another sigh-inducing failure of uh, modern IT. Any credit card company is not going to make you bear the brunt of the weight of a financial failure uh, if if it occurs on their side of the system. And, and BA has said this, the same to to everybody. But I actually, I don't know if I was affected. I don't, I don't believe I was affected, but I have an American, a British Airways American Express card, personal one. And I got an email through this week and it said, 
We want to assure you we have industry-leading fraud protection technology that is continually monitoring for any suspicious activity in order to safeguard you. Also, our card members are never liable for any fraudulent charges on their accounts. If you have used your American Express card to book with British Airways, which I have many times, we are monitoring your account for you. There's no action you need to take. We'll contact you immediately if there's any unusual activity. In the meantime, you can continue to use your card as normal. Now, that to me is a very acceptable thing to send because I, I get the sense from that that they are monitoring, but that I haven't been affected and I don't need to do anything right now. And that, that makes me feel good, particularly since I have recently booked flights through British Airways website on my British Airways American Express. What concerned me most when I heard about it was apparently that the um, it wasn't just credit card numbers either. It was the uh, verification numbers, the CVV. Uh, which on an American Express card is the four digits on the front and on most cards it's the three digits on the back. Yeah. Um, and that is very alarming, um, that, that that information going missing. And in fact, the fact that that information is stored actually um, w- would be some cause for concern because actually I, I, my understanding was that there wasn't a really a need for that um, and that, that that information was just as a verification step. Do you remember listening to um, This Week in Tech years ago uh, when John Dvorak was on? I don't know if he still is. I don't listen to the show anymore. But I remember him saying that it used to be the case with Amex that they would, um, if you bought two fuel, you know, two loads of petrol for your car and a pair of trainers, that they'd uh, immediately block you because that was a really good uh, indication that you would, you'd, your card had been stolen. Card companies are very, very sophisticated about the way they detect for fraud because, as we've said, uh, they're responsible. So, I mean, the difference here is that, this, that the fraud was occurring via the website rather than somebody compromising the card in person, you know, as a, through identity theft or something else. But I agree that that you know that's a very good indicator i mean another one is simply just where you're based and if you've made a transaction in london and then you make another transaction in i don't know singapore then it's quite likely that unless you've created point-to-point travel that exceeds natural logistical barriers then it's quite possible that someone has been using your card in singapore or vice versa if you're based in singapore so that's a point in the chat room a couple of interesting points i mean matt pointed out that uh, big fines only happen if the company is really negligent and that's very true and uh, what we understand at this point is that it's not necessarily a case of negligence on, on ba's part but we can obviously look forward to hearing what the ICO has to say about it. But that's also kind of the reason why I'm so interested in this. It's because we haven't seen the ICO deal out any fines under GDPR yet. And this, if my my friend over at, um, at Port, Julian, is correct, there's a, at least a reasonable expectation that the ICO could use this as a bit of a case study and it'll set an interesting precedent as to what we should expect from fines going forwards. But uh, let us know if you have been affected by this hack and if you've had any emails through to explain that you have been compromised. We'd love to hear how that has been handled and how you feel about it. Hello at techpodcast.uk. Physical video games are to include a new warning icon on their packaging if they offer in-game purchases. This is according to the Pan-European Game Information 
organization, or PEGI as it's better known, uh, and according to a Guardian write-up this week. The Guardian wrote that a new graphic of a hand holding a credit card will appear alongside existing icons such as those that indicate a suggested age limit for players and provide warnings for games including content featuring sex, drugs, bad language, gambling, depictions of stereotypes likely to encourage hatred or themes likely to generate fear. Now, I am fascinated by with this, but for two reasons. One, that it needs to exist at all, because I think it really highlights how in-app payments have gone from being something typically just associated with free-to-play games on mobile phones to big box retail AAA titles at number one in the, the charts, in the main charts. But secondly... There are two places where information like this typically, you know, normally appears on a game box or on in, in promotional material. One is on the front, which is where the Peggy warnings uh, often are, or certainly on the back. And the other is just some technical information about the game, such as how many players is it for? Does it require an internet connection? Does it, you know, how much hard drive space does it take to install? And I would have thought that those in-app purchases would be fairly safely included on the latter of those two examples. Uh, But instead, it's sort of putting in-app payments up front as something that needs to be warned about to the same extent as graphic violence, drug use, you know, should it generate as much controversy as as the kind of content you see in in a Grand Theft Auto or a Call of Duty? It should, uh, because every week we're getting um, news stories in the press about um, people running up huge bills in Fortnite and similar games. And of course, um, Fortnite is a bit of a weird one because it's a free game um, and therefore perhaps doesn't have the same uh, parental oversight as a as a paid game. I mean, this is this story is entirely about you said it's um, it's only in like physical game copies. Right. So, I mean, you can't physically buy Fortnite, can you so um for now it's physical it's 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 physical and and the anticipation is that the first boxed copies of games that will feature this label will be on sale before the end of the year and you know and just for reference you look at a, a game like battlefield 5 coming up from ea or fifa which also from ea fifa uh, 19 they all are AAA full-priced games, but all feature in-app payments in some form. Yes. I, I think I don't think this is ever going to be a bad idea. I don't think there's any reason not to warn parents. Um, my feeling is that parents don't pay a huge amount of attention to anything written on that Peggy thing, apart from maybe the age. But actually, because I've got kids, I'm obviously slightly concerned about what they're going to play. And I'm, I'm a bit sort of on the fence with Fortnite. I don't... Just to give you an example. Um, I, you know, but then... You don't because you don't see a lot of um, age information about that kind of game because it's kind of it's because it's free. No one seems to care. Um, but so good, good idea. I like the idea. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it. I think m- more importantly than that, though, there is another issue, um, and it's about how games consoles and um, accounts for these games are managed. And I, I felt this personally from um, from say. I've got a tablet that's a, it's an Amazon tablet. And um, I, I find as a parent, and, and one that's obviously re- relatively tech savvy, that it isn't actually always the easiest thing in the world to properly restrict and use the parental controls on those tablets. And I can see a lot of parents being um, sort of 
confused by it and not bothering. Uh, and that's, I think, where the problems start to come. Because essentially, if you've got um, if you've got a, an Xbox and you set it up with, say, one account, and it's just, you know, that's just a family account, um, you may have paired a credit card with it. You may or may not have turned on or off verification. But there are a lot of little ways that you can fall foul of in-app purchases. Uh, for example, on um, on the Kindle, uh, not the Kindle, the Fire tablet, um, Amazon has this thing called Underground, which a lot of people will be aware of. It's free games. Um, during using that, uh, my son, who's just about five, has learned very quickly how to uh, buy the um you know the the ring packs for sonic and th- that can get very expensive you know those those can be as much as 80 pounds a pack uh, now on underground they're all free everything's free um so that's really good but what i my concern there would be say if the they stopped it being on underground and it went away and then i reinstalled the the paid version then he would still have that knowledge about how to buy a ring pack but he would have no idea that it was free um, and I think the mechanism might be slightly different on a on a paid app. But we get these stories in the press about kids who've bought things with their parents' credit cards and the parents are outraged. In fact, I worked with a guy just recently who had exactly that story. Um, and I think his son knew that he was paying, but, that, you know, but did it anyway, because obviously kids don't have a huge amount of understanding about money. Um, and what it means, and the you know the volume of money, um, and spent quite a lot of money. And you hear these stories all the time. So I think what we probably need to do is have a little sit down and a think about how we manage in-app payments in general, um, and really tighten the rules up. And I, I kind of would almost like to see a. I don't. I don't like making rules on these things but i do think there should be like a a cooling off period and everyone can have an account you know where they set up an email address if any payments go through on this account do you want to approve it yes or no i just feel like that is a much better way of handling things than the mess we've currently got now where you're able to build to credit cards mobile phone numbers all that kind of stuff it becomes very confusing yes and your concerns are echoed by a ceo of one of the biggest games retailers in Europe, who I who I spoke to in in the week, who I'm not quoting because we were off the record, but they they said that the concern really was that parents just do not understand how these in-app payments and and the systems that they enable work at all, and that elevating a warning like this to this to the same area of graphic violence and and sex references and things is more necessary than many people will think simply because it is possible to run up these gigantic bills it does encourage a different type of behavior within the game if you have a thought on in-app payments in uh, mainstream video games then do let us know hello at techpodcast.uk particularly obviously if you have any thoughts on the necessity of this kind of on box warning as we said this is going to be hitting store shelves before the end of the year and apparently this is only step one so we'll have to keep our eye on how that follows hello at techpodcast.uk you're listening to text message the uk focused technology podcast with me nate langson and me ian morris And if you're one of our patrons, this that you're listening to so far is your extended ad-free version of this week's show. But if you're not yet a patron and we'd like to get our ad-free extended versions or listen and interact with us live, as many people are doing right now, 
head to patreon.com forward slash UK tech. You'll get instant access to our entire back catalogue of extended shows. And I want to thank a few of our new patrons who have joined us since the start of our hiatus uh, in June, where we took a little summer break. Uh, Liam Daly, Andy Rivet-Karnak, KV and Stuart Moore, thank you very much for joining us. You are helping us pay the bills and we are eternally grateful, aren't we, Ian? Yes, we are very much so. I also just wanted to use this time to raise everyone's awareness to something that's happening IRL next week in real life. And that is that I'm hosting a podcasting masterclass at uh, King's Place, also known as where the Guardian building is. And that is going to be as part of the London Podcast Festival. So if you would like to come along, the tickets are, are paid. It's part of a, a big event, but it's uh, it's not very much. Uh, and we'll include the link in the show notes today to how you can um, find that. But if you just want to Google London Podcast Festival and my name, you'll find it. Or just go to kingsplace.co.uk. And that's happening in London, as I said, next weekend on the 15th. It would be lovely to see any of you there. And come and learn how we how we do the show, and then probably have a little chat afterwards. Earlier this week, I visited Andy Hoyle and Katie Collins because they had just landed back at Heathrow from the IFA Tech Trade Show in Berlin, and I thought it would be a tremendously timely opportunity to have Andy cook me some food and we'd talk a bit about the highlights that he discovered from the show and I started by asking Andy what his highlights were from the show. Samsung's TV is definitely the star of the show as it were. It's um, a massive TV of course in a whole range of sizes uh, but it's the first TV that we've seen that's going to be commercially available that has an 8k resolution now this is coming at a time when kind of everyone else is getting their heads around 4k really and not everyone has a 4k set i don't even have a 4k set um and only 4k sets are now just becoming a bit more affordable so already having 8k seems a touch previous um of samsung um but they were kind of freely happy to admit that when i when i spoke to them they did say that yes there's no broadcast yet there's no content there's certainly no movies or games in 8k yet and storage is going to be difficult to figure out if you said well those things won't happen unless there's actually a set to play it on the industry has always worked by the tvs with the resolution arrives and then the content follows so which is a very very good point and i and i totally agree with them on that that is what we've seen before um and it was almost certainly what will happen again and um, they did say that there is um one broadcaster i can't remember which nhk tv is that one of the japanese nate's nodding i'm going to go with yes um they are apparently going to be broadcasting the next Olympic Games in 8K. So there at least will be something to watch. And of course, there'll be a whole load of like demos, people who do time lapses on uh, digital cameras that have got resolutions far beyond that. Um, but it is going to be a long time before we see movies in 8K. So really, I don't think there's any point in buying one of these when they come out. They seem a little bit of a proof of concept for now, but they are actually going on sale from later in September. So it'll be interesting. Were these able to be seen in person? Like, could you stand in front of one? What does an 8K set look like in person? And is it that much better than 4K? Yeah, they do look a lot better. But the thing to remember is this isn't, this isn't just pixel overkill. The 
industry trend is now massively towards much bigger TVs. It is, it is uh, the biggest selling TV size is um, uh, 65 inches um, and bigger. We're also seeing 75 and 85. They used to be that used to be the sphere of the ultra rich. You'd have these big TVs, but now they are very, very common. And uh, sizes like 40 inch aren't really as popular anymore. And but in order to have what is now a four, you know, 4K quality on say a, on a 40 inch TV or even HD quality, you need to to stretch that to such a big TV. You really need to ramp up those pixels. So 8K TV on an 85 inch isn't just oh, isn't it look? Isn't it super? more so much more detail than i've ever seen before it's matching the quality that you're currently getting on your much smaller 4k tvs you need more pixels to fill a bigger space so you are getting much better picture quality uh, picture quality but on those bigger tvs if you're if you look uh, at the detail on a on a you know a 40 inch hd tv or a 4k tv and you look at the quality on a 8K, 85 inch, you probably won't notice that much difference, and that's kind of the point. As we get bigger TVs, we need more resolution to fill those screens. They did talk a lot about the skills that these TV have with upscaling, and I did see some examples of both 4K and HD content being upscaled, and actually it was really, really impressive. Very few artifacts, very, very good upscale. Um, the, the difference was was vast that I could see again on on, on an 85 inch uh, reference TV which I was looking at and that's partly because they have actually they've built in um, really powerful processes into the TVs themselves that are doing that are dedicated to just doing the task of upscaling because they know that for you know when these TVs first go on sale there is going to be no 8k content for people to watch so they need to make sure that everything that you're currently doing from gaming with your Xbox to watching YouTube or Netflix or watching porn whatever it is you want to use on, do on your tv it can upscale it really really well so i think that's what people are going to be using so far when i asked katie what her highlight from efa this year was i was not expecting the manufacturer's name that you said katie tell me tell us your highlight from this year's Aoife and why? Well, Nate, um, I'm actually just as surprised as you are to be saying that my highlight from this year's show is the BlackBerry Key 2 LE. <gasps> um, <laughs> now, obviously, Aoife is not a show that's known particularly for smartphones. And especially over the last few years, since Samsung stopped announcing the Note at Aoife, Huawei's stopped announcing the Mate at Aoife, the, there have been very few exciting phones there. It, they're often some mid-range phones. Um, but because of this, the most exciting phone that we saw at this show this year was... Um, this BlackBerry, um, and it's it's effectively it's, it's just been a couple of months now since BlackBerry announced its latest flagship, the BlackBerry Key Two. Um, this uh, this phone is a kind of um, a lighter edition. Uh, it has a it has a keyboard. Um, it's actually very similar to the Key Two. So if you know what what that means, it's is it's a an Android phone with um, with a you know, full touch screen, um, but also this keyboard, and it's it kind of follows the same design language to an extent as the uh, the key two, but um, it's kind of a I think it's a much more exciting phone from from BlackBerry because what happened when BlackBerry started making phones again was that actually that they thought that it would be really popular as they have been in the past with business users and enterprise users, but actually the consumer market 
the demand from the consumer market has been much greater than they expected, which is why they've made this, again, a, a kind of a more consumer-friendly phone. Um, and um, one thing that they've done, which I did not expect from them either, was that they've rediscovered that colour exists and is a thing that not all phones just have to be black. So they have, so they, they're bringing out this phone in three different colours. One's a kind of slate grey blue colour. The second colour is a sort of a champagne gold colour. And the third colour is this atomic red, this really bold, bright red. It's, um, it's going to be um, three, I think it starts at £349. And where does this sit in terms of being a low-end, mid-range, high-end phone? What, what, what does it sort of compare to that, that most people would know? Andy is our... Uh, mobile phones editor here in the UK so he can probably give you a better example of what it would compare to directly. Let me just see where Andy is. Oh here he is just to my east. I'm right over here. Hi there. Uh, I mean I think crucially with this phone because it's still a Blackberry it's got the keyboard beneath the screen um, it's almost like it, it's, it's I think it's easy to see it as a phone that stands on its own like there isn't another phone with a keyboard that directly compares I don't think it's a sort of phone that if you've got 350 quid in your pocket and you want a new phone I don't think you're going to think oh, okay do you want the Blackberry or do I want this thing like it's a very different sort of phone it's a very different phone experience and so I think they've done very uh, done a good job in bringing the price down of that because they the other phones that BlackBerry have tried to kind of get back on on into the market with the Priv, which I was a big fan of actually, the Passport, uh, even with the the first Key that they launched um, over a year ago, they have been um, quite high end prices. I think the uh, I think the Priv launched at about the six hundred seven hundred pound mark, so it was very price wise going head to head with um, at the time like the Galaxy S seven. And yeah, people weren't. If you people wanted to pay seven hundred pounds for a phone, they wanted a flagship, you know, sexy, all singing, all dancing smartphone like the Gat one of the Galaxy phones or like the iPhone. They didn't want to go BlackBerry, but this one brings it down to a price where it's much more accessible to those people who maybe used to have like the BlackBerry Bold. As I say, I don't think necessarily people are going to be looking between two generic android phones and the blackberry um in terms of in terms of price alone i think it stands on its own and that's and i think that's, it's great that it stands on its own and that it's at a, a much more realistic price tag because it isn't going to compete with the big boys but people will still be interested at this price one extra thing that i'd like to add about the blackberry key 2 le is that it's got a couple of really interesting software features that are at the moment unique to this phone but blackberry will also be rolling them out to, to owners of the key 2 there are specific apps that it allows you to clone um, so you can have, for example, two um, two separate apps that are in, both Instagram on your phone. For example, you can have two you can have an Instagram app now, and you can manage two accounts from it. But the you know it's it's they're effectively kind of linked. You have to go into the same app to use it, and it's allowing people to put these cloned apps within its locker. Um, and the BlackBerry Locker is a software feature that already exists, but effectively once an app is in your locker, if you go to open the app, it requires an extra fingerprint to get into it, so an extra layer of security. Um, and it, at the moment, like I say, it's only got a few apps that, um, that, that you can do this with, but it's working on bringing more. Massive TVs at EFA, no surprise. BlackBerry being hailed as innovative and manufacturer of the show, definitely a surprise. The intonation at the end of that sentence suggested the answer is yes. Andy Hoyle, Katie Collins, both of them seen it. Thank you very much. Nate, back to me, you, in the studio. By the way, nice beard. Uh, thanks very much, uh, past me. Very kind of you to point out. Um, could do with a shave, actually.
Catalog retailer Argos has launched a voice shopping service to let people reserve products in a local store using a Google Home smart speaker. The service is also going to work via Google Assistant on smartphones, the BBC wrote this week. And just as a little step back for anyone who is unfamiliar with Argos, perhaps people listening outside of the UK, imagine Amazon was a physical shop. It's a bit like that. And instead of just using a website, everything's printed on paper in the shop, which you can also take home for free. It sounds criminally inefficient, and indeed is, but that's what it is. And it's a very useful type of shop and very popular in the UK. Now, the BBC said it's the first retailer in the UK to offer a shopping service via the Google Assistant platform. That's what's interesting to us here. Shoppers still need to browse the catalogue or go to the Argos website to find the product they want first, but after enabling the service, they can then just ask the Google Home smart speaker to check availability and reserve items and go and pick them up in the shop. Amazon has sold a lot of Echo speakers which, you know, we're talking about Google Home here, but obviously the prime competitor here, huh, prime competitor, uh, is the uh, is the Amazon Echo. But analysts say very few people actually use them to buy products. And so there was a quote in the BBC article from Argos's uh, CEO, John Rogers, who said, this launch is step one, and I don't expect it to turn on the tap and suddenly double our sales, but I expect people will use it and experiment with it. And if we can make it a seamless process, you can see why people would want to use it, which is sort of executive speak for oh, might as well give it a go see if there's anything there if worth the pr boost if nothing else so it seems a little bit of a what do they call it a damp squib is that a thing yeah i used to think i used to think that was a damp squid and i thought well all, all squid they're all damp they're, they're dancing all, all the time it, it's pointless it's like taking photo photographs of mimes everyone looks like a mime in a photograph like, that's a really good point what do you think of this there is some value to it because um, the other day I was out. I mean, this does this isn't a great example because I was outside the house, but I was thinking, you know what? The kids are pretty much done with uh, Mario Odyssey. They've they've essentially finished it, uh, bar the end game grind. You don't have a Switch, do you? I think that's a big mistake. I, I've got lots of Switches in my house. As you know, I've got one for the lights. Yes, but you don't have the Nintendo Switch. No, exactly. No, I don't have that particular Switch. No. No. Anyway, short story long. Uh, I thought I'm going to. I'm just going to get Mario Kart. You know, I think I've wanted to have it for ages and it's a great game and the kids obviously do love it. They love the one on the Wii. So I, I, I got my phone out and I, I booked it with uh, Argos because I was in town and I thought, yeah, it's okay, I'll just go and pick it up. Uh, I don't think it sped the process up very much, but I can also see the value of thinking, oh, I'm going into town today. Why don't I say to Ella, uh, I'll, I'll Google Home, oh, shh. I've woken her. Uh, why don't I say to Google Home, uh, book me a set of uh, steak knives at Argos? You know, why not? The only, obviously, the only problem with that really is, you know, do you get the one that you want when you ask for it? Uh, that's easy when you're saying, I'd like to reserve Super Mario Kart 8. It's a little less easy when you're, you know, there's 10 different products that are all the same thing. Also, I do want to keep considering the fact that there is a disability issue that's extremely useful with um, smart speakers. Uh, you know, if you don't have the luxury of, you know, total sight, then asking Alexa or 
she didn't wake up then, or asking Google Home to uh, to get you one of those things is actually a really good way of interacting with the world. So, you know, I, I can't be too down on the idea. If you remember, Ian, back in the day, there was another catalogue shop called Index. Yes. The, the, it was always a real highlight for me. The day a new Index or Argus catalogue came out, and I would go straight to the digital watch section and and just marvel at what new technologies were in there. And I remember getting into a, a massive argument once back in my primary school with uh, my friend David Shaw, who um, was adamant that Xeon watches were the best watches made. And I, and I was adamant that Casio watches were the best made. And then in the index... In the index catalog, one year they sold both the the Casio and Xeon TV controlling watch, and David Shaw and I got into a bitter dispute about which was better. And I, to this day, am still adamant that I was correct, and Casio uh, was the superior model, and in fact ended up getting one uh, for a while, and that was also the product that I got bored with and swapped with a friend in school for Final Fantasy VII on the PlayStation One, which is the first time I ever played. A PlayStation, uh, a Final Fantasy game. So there you go. You all know about mine and David Shaw's long history of browsing Index together in Argos, and wonder where he is now. Wonder if he's listening. If you're listening, David, drop us a line. Hello at techpodcast.uk. Come on the show. Let's talk about catalogs. Let's move into some emails, and we had a few come in over the break, so we're going to stagger these out over the next couple of weeks. Um, One that I just couldn't avoid because it was basically one line um, came from Stuart, who said, I had both the Sonic inflatable chair and the sausage in a can. And it took me a moment to remember that that was in response to our question about Sonic the Hedgehog uh, merchandise and the various things that Sonic has lent his face to in the name of marketing. So... Good to know someone had the Sonic inflatable chair and the sausage in a cam. If you've got pictures of that, that would be delightful. Hello at techpodcast.uk. Um, and then a longer email that um, I definitely want to get to because we were talking about facial recognition uh, many weeks ago when we were just before we went on our break. Uh, and we got this email in from Randeep who says, Hey, Nate and Andy. Oh, Andy was on the show this week. And brackets he put, and possibly Ian, I miss you. Oh, I that's think that's because so I'm. On that particular show, um, it was when you were off and I did the show with Andy. Yeah. Uh, Randeep continues. Long-term listener, first time I've emailed you. Just wanted to let you know my thoughts on automated facial recognition. You and Andy spoke in your conversation about your worry that someone brought in for questioning as a suspected terrorist may have this on their permanent record. My worry is scarier than this. I'm a British-born South Asian guy, so so English, but brown-skinned with a hipster beard. I often encounter so-called random stop-and-search and and extra surveillance, often in the most unlikely of places and often by armed security. should point out Randeep's based in London. I assume this happens as they think that I'm a Muslim extremist, which is all the more senseless as I'm not Muslim, and the most extreme thing about me is my sharp dress sense. Now, I know what I'm going to say will sound (laughs) far-fetched, but honestly, this is my real fear, and unfortunately shared by many people who look like me. The fear is that being one of the small percent of false positives could be lethal. At the moment, armed police are following or monitoring or searching me due to their prejudice and assumptions, which have no basis in evidence. If there was an accurate face recognition computer that 
potentially identified me as a wanted terrorist, their prejudice would be backed up with computer evidence. There's research looking at US police shootings and other psychology papers that indicate this would increase the chance of me being shot and killed because my perceived threat value has gone up. Key point, I didn't do anything threatening or worrying. My normal behavior will be seen as suspicious, increasing the chance of them thinking I'm dangerous. Uh, Randeep continues, this isn't just a theoretical theory, and he points to the gentleman who was shot dead in the Stockwell tube station in 2005 because police thought he was possibly on a terrorist watch list. Uh, Randeep continues, this wasn't an ironclad identification, just a suspicion from the police. His innocent actions were misinterpreted as being that of a terrorist and the police officer shot him. Now, I'm sure having uh, having a beard covering half my face will make mistakes more likely, but... If that small chance of mistakes results in real increase of harassment or death in my everyday life, it's very concerning. Don't forget this will happen in public spaces, concerts, during any silent terror alerts which you may not even be aware of. It adds a lot of stress to have to watch all your actions in case someone with a gun might misinterpret them. Thanks for the great work and apologise if the email was a little heavy. Uh, love listening to the podcast. Well, thank you, Randeep. I mean, this is the kind of first-person commentary that we massively value because we can we can hypothesize about what it you know feels like to be on the receiving end of uh, a misidentification or false positive or something like that and we can only really guess at what that what that feels like and so it's really valuable to um to have you be so honest and and let us know kind of how that affects your day-to-day life Mm. So thank you. Also, um, it has it has sort of there is a sort of worry, isn't there, that <clears throat> facial recognition and modern technologies like that might not be quite so good at dealing with people who aren't white. I'll I'll just put it that way. Um, yeah. And you know, and so you know, there are very real concerns, and I can only imagine what it's like to uh, you know live in a world where you're randomly pulled over. There's a a very uh, well known image from a sort of a meme, if you will, with a, a guy. I think he's um, he's wearing a turban, so he's probably Sikh. Um, and, yep. he, and, and the thing says, you know, just about to be randomly selected. And, you know, and, you know, and, and as Randeep says, it, it's you can't just look at someone and go, ah, oh, they're a Muslim, because that just doesn't work. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's deeply worrying. Thanks to everyone else who has been emailing us and uh, sticking with us over our summer hiatus uh, the, our patrons in particular supporting us every week and if you're not yet a patron but would like to get our ad free extended versions of uh, each week's show listen and interact with us live uh, as we have been doing this week so thank you to everyone who's in the chat room giving us great feedback uh, including Luke who I just see has logged into the chat just in time for the ending <laughs> bit, as he said yes well thank you it's good to have you here Luke we've um, we've missed talking to you all um, but you can get involved in that by heading to to patreon.com forward slash UK tech and hopefully help us finish this month with one more patron than we had last month. And if you'd like to send any comments to us, it's hello at Tech Podcast UK and follow us on Twitter. It's at text message pod to keep up to date with the most important UK technology headlines throughout the week. And thanks to everyone for listening to us on our ad free supported feed. If you have a minute to review us on iTunes, it's the best way of supporting us without spending a penny. And also don't forget that you can join me for the podcasting masterclass at King's Place next Saturday on the 15th. Check techpodcast.uk for a link or the Twitter feeds. It'll all be on there as well for full details. So from me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. We will see you in a week. <laughs>